Okay, so welcome to this week's Parsha Zoom class, Zoom Parsha class. So this week we have a double header. We read two Torah portions together, the Torah portion Tazria and the Torah portion Mitzorah. And, you know, as, as you'll read it, you'll see it's quite logical that these two would go together because the bulk of both of them talk about the concept of tzaras, the concept of leprosy. There are those holy books and the holy mystics that would not call the second Torah portion by the name I just used, Mitzora, which means leprosy, but rather they would call it Parshas Tahara, the purification, because in that Torah portion, they have the, um, the procedure of when someone um, went through leprosy, how they would later become pure. So they would call it Pashas Tara because they didn't want to use a negative word. So, you know, the Rebbe would never use a negative word. He would say um, um, the good and the opposite or, you know, stuff like that. Uh, so, yeah, so that's what they call Pashas Tara. Either way, just a, just a quick brief explanation for those who uh, will be listening to this. So why do we have double headers? And the reason is because in the annual cycle of reading the Torah, we have to read 54 portions in one year cycle. However, there are not in the lunar year, we do not have 54 Shabbatot in which we read the Torah portion. If it's a leap year, we can have an extra four or five Shabbatot. But if it's not a leap year, there's only one month of Adar, so then we don't have enough Shabbatot to do all the Torah portions. And, and this becomes a specifically so when you look at the holidays that come out on Shabbat and on those holidays, Pesach and Sukkot, and, and if Shavuot comes out on Shabbat, we won't be reading the Torah portion of the annual cycle. We'll be reading the holiday portion. And if that be the case, after Yom Kippur, and as, uh, when we go into the Sukkot holiday, which ends with Simchat Torah, which is all about um, uh, you know, completing the 54th Torah portion, uh, we won't be able to do that. So to, in order to make that happen, there's a misora, there's a tradition in which Torah portions get doubled up in order to make sure that we'll be finished all the 54 Torah portions on time for the Simchat Torah holiday. So that's the reason why some years we have double ups and some years we don't, and which ones you do and which ones you don't. And we align it also in choosing which ones we do and which ones we don't. We also align it with a tradition that certain Torah portions have to be read before certain holidays. For example, before Shavuot, the upcoming um, holiday uh, in which we celebrate when the Torah was given, so we actually we actually have to read two Torah portions specifically before um, the holiday. We read Bichukotai, in which there's the, um, where there's the Torah portion in which uh, Moses um, entered a covenant with us about keeping the mitzvot and what will happen to us if we don't keep the mitzvot, but we don't want to go straight from that Torah portion to Shavuot. So we always have to make sure that not only we read that Torah portion before, we have to read it two weeks before. So after that, we can read the opening portion of Bamidbar um, before the holiday as well. So just an example, we, want, we need to make sure that we read the Torah portion of Nitzavim before 
um, Rosh Hashanah. There's certain holidays that the sages set up specifically to read certain Torah portions. Okay, with that being said, let's go into the Torah portion. And I'm going to focus the bulk on it. The bulk of, of tonight's uh, discussion is not going to be on the details of the Torah portion. But as I just sent out, you know, so often I get asked, Rabbi, you know, I envy your faith in God. And how can I acquire faith in God? And, and you know, I, I'm going to talk about that. So with that being said, let's just go briefly at least through what the contents of the Torah portion is. So the first Torah portion is called Tazria, and basically it means to have a child, to have an offspring. It talks about the purities and the impurities of childbirth. So we're not going to learn about the laws of the menstrual cycle and how that affects the purity and impurity stages until the end of the second Torah portion. We're going to start right away with the childbirth. Now, the way it works with childbirth is that we have what we call certain pure days because the fact that the woman is passing blood is because it's called the blood of a wound. The blood of a wound is not impure. It's the blood of specifically the menstrual cycle, which is impure. So therefore, there's X amount of days, which is called pure days, that even though she's bleeding, she's not considered impure. And then there's specific days, amount of days, which is impure. And there's a difference between a boy and a girl. The amounts are doubled in a girl than it is by a boy. Now, one year I was learning through the Torah with Nachmanites, not Maimonides, Ramban, not Rambam. It's Rab Moshe ben Nachman, not Rab Moshe ben Maimon, even though they had very similar lives. They were both doctors. They were both um, codifiers of Jewish law. They were both Kabbalists. They were both um, psychologists to, to their generation. Um, so Rab Moshe ben Nachman has a very interesting a commentary on the whole Torah. And um, he, he, in that commentary, he will swing from Kabbalah to medicine. It's just unbelievable. And I remember that on discussing this issue, why the impure days, why is it double by giving birth to a girl than if you give birth to a boy? He talks about it from a medical aspect. He talks about the white and the red. And, uh, you know, I guess he's talking about blood cells, but he's talking about just from a biological point of view on what the woman goes through in the process of having a daughter versus the process of having a boy. And from that medical aspect, he explains the reason why when you have a girl, there's a double amount of, of days for purity and impurity. Now, I also want to point out that even though this is not the place for it, we're talking about the laws of purity and impurity, but out of nowhere, once he mentions that you have, a, 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 when you have if a woman gives birth to a boy, so in verse three, he all of a sudden mentions, and on the eighth day, you will circumcise him. Now, this isn't the place for that. We're not talking about the laws of the baby. We're talking about the laws of the mother. So... Maimonides this time, Maimonides in, in his book of laws gives a very interesting um, foundation to Torah and mitzvot. And he says as follows, where is the time when we are told about circumcision? We are told about it in the book of Genesis 
in the portion of Lech Lecha, when God tells Abraham at the age of 99 that he should circumcise himself. God tells him that he's going to have a child, but he should circumcise himself first. And over there he says, and you will circumcise your household and your children and your children's children um, on the eighth day, so forth and so on. And Isaac is the first Jew to have his circumcision on his eighth day. However, Maimonides points out that every single one of the 613 commandments cannot be just an inheritance from what God told Abraham. Because as a rule in the foundation of Judaism, all, all of the commandments must be commanded to us post the Mount Sinai revelation. Hence, he says that the commandment why you and I have circumcisions is not because of the verses and the elaborate verses in Genesis where it gives all the details, but rather in this one verse here in the book of Leviticus, which is being told to us after the Mount Sinai revelation. The Mount Sinai revelation, the giving of the Torah takes place in the middle of the book of Exodus in the Torah portion of Yisrael. And therefore Leviticus is after. So in this one verse, this five letter, five word verse, is the reason why everyone has a circumcision today. Nevertheless, the Rebbe of blessed and saintly memory points out something amazing. Even though Maimonides tells us that the reason why we have the circumcision is not because God commanded Abraham to circumcise himself pre-Mount Sinai, pre-receiving the Torah, but the whole reason that every single man, every single male, every Jewish male today has circumcised is because of this one verse in Leviticus. Nevertheless, look at the words of the blessing that we make when we circumcise a Jew. The words are, Lachniso bivrito shel Avram avinu alav hashalom. So by the blessing, we're saying, not that we are entering into the covenant that God made with us in Leviticus, but rather we're clearly stating that we are doing this as entering into the covenant that God made with Avraham. But one second, I just quoted to you clearly that Maimonides says that what we're doing is not because of what Abraham did, but because of what God commanded us right here in this week's Torah portion. So the Rebbe goes on to give an unbelievable explanation how it is true that what we accomplish with our Brit is empowered by the unprecedented co connection between heaven and earth when God descended upon Mount Sinai and said to us, I am God, your God, giving us the I connection with God. While Abraham didn't receive that with his Brit Milah. And nevertheless, the only reason why you and I have the power to embrace the entire spiritual experience of having a Brit Milah is because Avraham opened up the pathway. So while it is true that our mitzvah is a post Mount Sinai, but there is the famous teaching 
of our sages in the Medrash that says, Maise avot siman libanim, is the actions of our forefathers that are signs for their offspring. And in Hasidus, we explain, it doesn't mean it's a sign like uh, telling us the future, but rather it's the opening of the gateways. It's the empowerment of the children. So we would never be able to fulfill the mitzvot post Mount Sinai if our forefathers didn't have the sacrifice to go ahead and do the Torah mitzvot and draw monotheism and following the ways of God before Matan Torah. So there's actually a beautiful consummation here going on that the Brit Milah is post Matan Torah. And yet the empowerment is clearly, as we say, the blessing. It's the Brit of Abraham, our forefather, in which we're entering our child. And then let's go further. We talk about right after the laws of the impurity and the purity and the purity and the purification process of the woman who gives birth, um, we go into the leprosy. Now, I just want to share that when you learn the Chumash, we get a complete wrong, wrong um, process of how to keep all the laws of the childbirth and of the menstrual cycle. And the reason for that is that we'll see, you know, let me just say it now so we can deal with it. So in the menstrual cycle, there is two types of impurities. One is called nida, which is the natural healthy cycle of the woman. Now, just to put things in perspective, why would a woman be considered impure for having the menstrual cycle. You know, normally we connect impurity with sin. I mean, what, what sin is the woman having that she's having a menstrual cycle? So just to understand this, we need to go back. Before Eve ate from the tree, there was no such thing as a menstrual cycle. Because before Adam and Eve ate from the tree, there was no concept of death. When God told Adam that on the day that you eat from this tree, you will die, Adam actually didn't die for another 930 years. But what the deeper meaning is, is that the day that he ate from the tree was the day where sin became one with the flesh of the human being Hence, if the body of the human being would live forever, then sin would live forever. Hence, the soul leaves the body, the body dies. And it isn't until when Mashiach comes, there'll be the resurrection where the prophet tells us that God will remove all evil and even the potential of evil, that we will once again be able to live for eternity. Now, I mean, and just to understand what that means living for eternity, um, we all live for eternity because our soul never dies. Our body is nothing more than a leased vehicle that the soul acquires entering into the world and returns the leased vehicle when it leaves the world. 
And just like for those of us that have leased cars, we know that when we return the lease, we don't die. We get out of the car, return the car back to its owner, and we're accountable for anything that we did to that car. So too, our body, we are accountable, which is the reason why we're forbidden to go ahead and make tattoos. We're forbidden to injure ourselves because the property of the leased body is God. It's God's property. And then we return it by putting it back into the earth. However, the soul lives on forever. So we always experience eternity, only that we only experience it from the soul perspective. When Mashiach comes and the body will be completely pure, nothing to do with sin, once again, we'll be able to have even physical eternity. Now, with that being said, so as I shared with you, that Eve was one of her punishments and having uh, labor pains and going through the menstrual cycle was an outcome of the eating of the tree. And as I just shared with you, the eating of the tree brought death. So if we look at it from a different perspective, what's going on in the menstrual cycle is a form of death because a potential life was not actualized. Every time a woman has a period, it's because every single month the ovaries produce an egg and the uterus aligns in preparation for the egg being fertilized to be able to bring a life into this world. Now, eventually, when the body sees that, that it's not happening and the egg is no more productive, so the body sheds this lining and therefore it's it's death in the sense of a potential life not actualized. Hence, that is why there's impurity. Now, this impurity today, the reason why the only impurity that exists today for us halakhically is the woman's menstrual cycle, because we're going to learn here that there's, there's different levels of impurities, which affects both men and women. When, it, when a man passes semen, he too becomes impure. So why are we making such a big thing about the woman and her nida, and why not about the man or anything else? And the answer is very simple, because all the laws of impurity from the biblical sense is only it only makes a difference in the times of the holy temple. Because then in the holy temple, you have laws that if you enter into the holy temple when you're impure, it's punishable by death. If you touch any of the sacrifices, any of the tithing, any of the, you know, anything that, that becomes sanctified, that's where the impurity takes an effect. The only exception to the rule is the menstrual cycle. The woman during her menstrual cycle period is not only impure in the sense that she can't enter into the holy temple, but also it affects the laws of marital relationships with her husband. Hence, this is the only form of impurity that becomes biblically applicable to us in our day-to-day -to -day life today. Now, just to go over it in the most briefest sense, so because the women in the times of the Talmud told the sages, we want to make it one process across the board. We don't want to have to count the difference if it's a menstrual cycle or it's an unhealthy passing or of blood or, you know, childbirth, not childbirth. So they made a rule. Anytime they pass blood from their reproductive um, organ, 
they're going to accept all the laws of the impurity. So therefore, in any time where there's blood, unless there's a surgery or a doctor can verify that this is clearly not from the uterus, this is clearly because she has a sore, a wound or anything, unless the doctor can clearly testify for that, then we, the women, it's not actually the men imposed upon the women. The women told the rabbis in the times of the Talmud that we're just going to treat it as a full-blown, all the laws of impurity. Hence, therefore, from when a woman sees blood, um, she's going to keep five days that she is called impure days. After five days, she will begin the process of checking herself that she's not passing blood anymore. And if she, when she has seven clean days, on the seventh clean day, the night after, she will go to the mikvah, and then she will become permissible to be with her husband. That is, across the board, how it works. Obviously, there's all bunch of details and laws and what happens if she's spotting, if she's staining, and, and what happens if, if because of the way she has her cycle and the way her ovulation, she can never get pregnant. These are all issues that the rabbis deal with and deal with and deal with. However, I just gave you across the board. Now, I want to say this because many people don't know this, so I want to just put this out there. Rabbi Akiva makes a statement in the Talmud that once a woman has a period, once she experiences her menstrual cycle, even 20 years after menopause, if she never went through the process of, of verifying that she has seven clean days and then goes to the mikvah, she will always remain a nidda. And therefore, there are many women that start learning the laws of Torah and mitzvot and become observant after menopause, and they say, oh, this doesn't apply to me. The answer is true. It doesn't apply to you, but you do have to do it once, go through the seven clean days and go to the mikvah to remove the status of nida, impurity, from the last time, even if it was 30 years ago, that you had your cycle. I just want to put this out there so people can know. Now, after that, by the way, again, uh, I'm jumping ahead to the end of the second Torah portion. And there's the same thing, the laws with a male. Um, uh, when he passes semen, there's two type of passing semens. There's one type of passing semen, which is just a natural way through an ejaculation that has one law that's called a carry. But then just like the woman has her natural cycle, menstrual cycle, but she also has something else called a zava, which is an ailment. So to the man, if he passes semen, not through the natural way, but it clearly is an ailment, it has a different law and it's called a zav. And again, those laws today, um, just that you know, I will share with you that there are Hasidim. The Talmud introduces this law. The Talmud says that it didn't manifest itself because a year later they saw that the people couldn't keep it. But you should know that amongst Hasidim, first of all, in Hasidim we go, the men go to the mikveh every day before davening. Um, even those who don't go every day, they try to keep what the holy Rabbi Isaac Luria Darizal says to go at least before Shabbat. Those who don't, don't go before Shabbat at least try to keep what's recorded in Jewish law that on the day before Yom Kippur to go to the mikvah. I want you to know that the Talmud talks about 
that there was an institution that they tried to, they tried to institute that there should be no studying Torah when after you've you've passed uh, semen in a natural way um, before you go to the mikvah. And, and then they ruled that this isn't biblical because the Torah is called fire and fire is not something that can ever become impure. Nevertheless, there were those that tried to keep it. And they said that, no, it didn't stick. The men weren't able to live up to it, so they're not going to enforce it. However, then there is a the concept of not doing prayers before you go to the mikvah after a night that you were with your spouse and you passed semen. And that there are chassidim that till this very day keep. And if they're stuck somewhere where there isn't a mikvah, they follow another process that's brought in Jewish law. And there's laws that you can even use a shower for that. It's a way how to do it in order to have tisha kabim, a certain measurement of water, um, shower your body um, before you go in and say words of prayer and, and even some before Torah. So just wanted to put that out there. Now let's get to leprosy. So there's three stages of leprosy. There's leprosy on the body, leprosy on the garment, leprosy on the walls of the house. Leprosies of the body, there are different laws. There is the laws of discoloration of skin. There's the laws of a bald spot where there's hair. And then there's the laws within the discoloration if it has two discolored hairs. Now, it's complicated laws. So I'm just going to go through the practicality. Some discoloration at a certain level of white or a certain level of raw color, um, it becomes impure and some is pure, depending on the discoloration. And the Torah clearly defines what level of white, what level of red, what color here, um, inside, around it, you mark it, you come back, you look at it. So there is a time where the Kohen will come and look, and it needs to be a Kohen. Um, even if the Kohen doesn't know the law, the rabbi will come with the Kohen. The rabbi will tell the Kohen what to say, but it is the Kohen that must say so. And the reason for it is, according to Kabbalah, is because Kohen represents kindness and compassion. And only someone whose soul is genetically kind can be someone to judge someone else. Now, the Kohen will look at it, and if he knows, he will say, if he doesn't know, the rabbi will tell him, and he will say one of three things. Either he will say, pure, this is not considered leprosy, or he will say, impure, and there will be all the laws of impurity, or he will say, we need to seclude you for seven days and then check it again. And that's what will happen. And then we'll see if it spread, if it darkened, if it didn't. And then he will decide if it's an impure blemish or it's a pure blemish. Now, there's different laws concerning skin blemish. There's different laws concerning hair blemish. Um, there's different laws concerning um, bald spot blemish. Um, there's one type that you actually can seclude him in doubt for two weeks. And then uh, the other one is only one week. There's all, I mean, read through the Torah portion. You'll see all the different laws. However, if the person is found impure, he needs to leave all the camps and he needs to be in total isolation. Now, what does it mean total isolation? If he leaves the camp, he's in isolation. 
So the sages extrapolate from this extra statement that he needs to sit alone, that even if there's more than one person who's in the state of impurity sent out of the camp, they can't be together, they each need to be alone. And our sages explain, and Rashi quotes it, why? Because this isn't just an issue of impurity. If it's just an issue of impurity, let them leave the camps and all the impure can be together. They can be quarantined together. Why do they have to be quarantined separately? And the answer is that our sages tell us that leprosy is a punishment of speaking gossip. Hence, through gossip, we created division amongst husband, wife, amongst friends. Therefore, let him experience division in isolation so that he can do teshuva. Now, I just, while I'm on the topic of gossip, I want to tell you a story. So someone came to this great rabbi. It's a documented story in the Talmud. And he said that he spoke gossip and he wants to know how he can make amends. And the rabbi told him, take a pillow, a feather pillow, go up to the second story in your house, cut open the pillow and let all the feathers out. He says, really? Okay. And that's what he does. Then he comes back to the rabbi and the rabbi, and he says, now what? He says, now go gather together all the feathers. He says, but Rabbi, it's impossible. The wind carried it all over. He says, so you should know that you can never make a full amends for gossip because you'll never be able to control now. You told A and B. You'll go and tell A and B, listen, it was gossip. But A and B already told C and D. They'll run to C and D, but C and D already told E, F, and G. G happened to be on a flight to overseas. And now you'll never be able to gather it together and bring it back. So gossip is not a victimless crime. So much so, the Talmud says that the tongue of gossip kills three. The speaker, the listener, and the person spoken about. Now, let's go further. The next step that he talks about is the garment. Now, our sages say like this, God at first gives you a private message. What you're doing is not good. You need to change your ways. So it's on your body. You can cover it with a garment. No one knows. So if you take it to heart, okay, message reached his purpose. But if you don't, God takes it to the next stage and there's a discoloration of a garment. Now it's already in public. New, but you can still just don't wear that garment. Keep it in the closet. And if you do that, then the next stage will be that it's on your house. And now everyone in the neighborhood sees. So God gives us messages. And if we're wise, we don't. The Maimonides says very harsh words on someone that says that any form of suffering is just, you know, circumstances. What can I tell you? I was in the wrong place in the wrong time. Rambam says to say that is, is fundamentally heresy because everything that happens to us is a communication from God. And any time that we're experiencing anything distasteful, we need to be able to embrace that this is God telling us, look into your actions. You can be better than this. Now, the laws of the garment, again, this whole law is about cutting out the piece. And if it comes back again, you have to burn the whole garment. And then there's the laws concerning the house. 
And over here too, there's the laws where you bring the Kohen, the Kohen sees it, it depends, is it on a corner or spreading on two bricks? Is it only a one brick? Do you have to just remove the brick? Do you have to take apart the whole house? There's whole laws. And the bigger issue over here is also that when a house is impure, then everything in the house is considered to be receiving the impurity because it's in the tent with impurity and the tent spreads the impurity. Hence, there's whole laws. Now, I want to share with you how, how compassionate God is. God says, do not call the Kohen before you remove everything from the house. Because it's not impure until the Kohen says that it's impure. So it doesn't work retroactive. If you know that you had this blemish for three days before the Kohen came, so seemingly everything, when the Kohen says that it's impure, that means it was impure for the last three days. No, it becomes impure only when the Kohen says it's impure. So the Torah tells you take everything out. And obviously, why take everything out? It's only a question of work because if things are impure, you would have to just put it in the mikvah. The only thing that you wouldn't be able to put in the mikvah is an earthenware which means that God is telling you that your property is so precious to him that even the few items that you're going to have to break makes a difference to God. Because everything that we own, we own for a spiritual reason, because we're elevating its sparks to serve God. And therefore, the laws of Baal Tashchis, not throwing something away, is a very important law. Because it's not just a question of, eh, who needs this? I'll get another one. Big deal. You know, today it's a different world. You just go on Amazon. One, two, three, it's there. And the answer is no. It's not just about whether it costs money or not. It's about this is a creation that exists to serve God. There's a spark in it. Treat it with respect. Okay. So there's all the laws. And then we go into the next Torah portion, which talks about the laws of how to purify the different types of sacrifices, the two birds, the process after you go ahead and you have seven days in isolation and so forth and so on. And you come to the Holy Temple, you have to stand in a special doorway because you can't enter the Holy Temple because you're still impure. But you have to be by the Holy Temple because they have to put blood on your ear and on your thumb. So there's a special doorway in which you can stand, which wasn't sanctified partially, but was sanctified partially and how you can do it. Now, and then it goes into the other laws of the, it goes into the other laws of the impurities as I spoke to you about. Now, what I want to share with you is Maimonides explains that many people were so gung-ho to believe that we are so much brighter and so much more advanced and so much more enlightened than in the olden days. There are people that are bent on saying that kosher is because they didn't have refrigeration with hookworms, blah, blah, blah. And then there are those that are, are bent on saying that leprosy was a skin disease and therefore it was an issue of quarantining like we're doing today with the corona. So Maimonides says, never mind the discoloration of the clothing, which people are going to say, okay, that must have been mold. A discoloration of the bricks, okay, that must have also been a type of mold. Maimonides says, the skin ailments of the body, which are natural, 
have to do specifically with the moisture in the blood, in the skin. It's all about it. We know that what we have liver marks. Why liver marks? Because liver is the place where the blood is clean. And our skin reflects what's going on with our blood. So therefore, we'll say that leprosy is that form. It's a rash. It's an outbreak. It has something to do with the blood, so forth and so on. So Maimonides defines for us as a doctor the difference. And then he says that this was a miraculous thing. It had nothing what to do with biology, which explains to us why today we don't have biblical leprosy. The sages clearly tell us that we don't have biblical leprosy. It's just a matter of the miracle doesn't take place. And why doesn't the miracle take place? So let's go back to a little bit of history. When the Spaniards came, the Indians started dying out, not because they were killing the Indians just. It's because the Indians, their body, so in tune with nature, was so pure, it didn't have the immune system because it was never exposed to certain bacterias. When the Spaniards came from the civilization where they came from, carrying all the bacterias which their body had already built immune for antibodies, but the Indians didn't have it, and therefore the Indians were dying. Now let's take it to the spiritual level. In the times of the Holy Temple, where the physical was so transparent to the spiritual, simply living a Torah life, living a spiritual life. Therefore, the body, which was connected and transparent to the soul, was so pure that it would react to sin in this format. So it wasn't biological from this point of physical. It was biological from the sense of the spiritual react, the physical reaction to the spiritual. But because today we have become so coarse, our heart is so coarse, our mind is so numb, therefore we now have, so to speak, antibodies, which we don't even react to spirituality. Now, if you want to put this in perspective, just look at how we today react to violence. I mean, with all the digital games that kids are seeing, where it's not like in my days, a blinking light stopped blinking, that character died. No, 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 no. Today, we have to have three-dimensional games so realistic about all the, the monsters and the coming and the epilogue and, and, and the talking about the, you have to see the scratches and then the limbs and the movies, you know, get awards for, for the, the uh, visual effects of looking so real and so everything. And the bottom line is today, when we see online pictures of, 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 of hurricanes ripping through, causing devastation. When we look at the aftermath of, 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 of bombers, of terrorist attacks, we become numb. Uh, we watch it, we frown, we like look away with a look of disgust, but no one that day is gonna be fasting simply because they just can't eat. I, I can't eat after I saw that, that, that those body parts all over the place, I can't eat. People don't do that today. Why? Because we become numb. So too, our physical has become so coarse that our spirituality has become so diminished that it's just like another day in the rat race. 
We're not shocked when we hear of clear lies and 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 just you know improprieties and, and and whatever it is, you know, when we start hearing stories about the president, that this, that that, it's like whatever, you know. Of course, politicians lie. Of course, politicians are immoral. How do you think they got to the top? And then you expect everyone and everything. You, you expect immorality. So much so that when you see a person that has reached success, the first thing goes through your mind. They are right. They slept away to the top or whatever it is. Our minds have become so coarse, so desensitized because of how much we have been exposed to that it's like, it's just normal. We don't react. We're not repulsed. And the same thing on a biological level, we're not repulsed and therefore we're not reacting with leprosy. Now, and again, leprosy is a miracle, but it was taken away from us, which this is going to lead me into um, for the remaining time of this class to talk about our relationship with spirituality and more importantly, faith. Because when Maimonides says, that we should not look at anything that happens in our life as just circumstances, bad luck, good luck, but rather it's all a direct communication that God is having with us in the most tangible, practical areas of our life, from our health to our family peace, to our, um, you know, parnasa, to our sustenance, everything. God is talking to us through every way imaginable. But to have that communication, we have to have faith. Hence, I'm gonna to turn to that question that I've been asked, and I really didn't know what to answer. First of all, I'm not here to publicly confess sins, but don't take it for granted that every rabbi, every religious Jew, everyone that went through yeshiva is always in a state of faith. We all get knocked off our horse where we just like, we just, don't, we can't wrap our head around this. And we don't know how to just live in inner peace that God got this. This is all God happening. This isn't someone doing to me. I'm no victim of anyone. I am being carried by God himself. And God puts me through things and God carries me through things and God does it because not to break me, but to make me so forth and so on. Don't think that just because this person davens three times a day, Shomer Shabbat, keeps kosher, learns Hasidus, that automatically, boom. You know, I told a story once on Yom Kippur that there was this guy, there was this big Broadway play, and this guy had a part. And what was his part? That when the cannon went off, he had one line in the entire play. He runs on the stage and he screams, the war has begun. No, however throughout practice over and over and over, they're not going to be shooting cannons. So they had one of the stagehands would run out with a sign and on it said in big word, bam, the guy would see the sign and he would say, the war has begun. New comes opening day. He makes sure that all his family is there. It's the first time he's on stage. He has a talking part. He makes sure that everyone he knows and everyone he's related to is all coming there. No, he's waiting, he's waiting, he's waiting for the moment. And that moment comes and the cannon really goes off. And when the cannon goes off, he jumps and what was that? When we're in yeshiva and we learn about faith, so a stagehand just shows us, bam. And if this happens, what will you do? I believe in God. I believe in God. But then when the cannon goes off in life, 
when we're not in yeshiva studying academically, but all of a sudden there's a health issue, God forbid. There's a bill we can't pay. There's, I, I can't understand what's going wrong between my children and I. I can't understand what's going on between God and I. I can't understand the, the, the fighting at home. I can't understand why am I having such a hard time maintaining a job? Why am I working so many hours and I'm not making money? The cannon goes off. We don't so quickly say emuna, not because we don't want to say emuna, but because we're jolted, like we're scared. So let's talk about faith. And when people would ask me how to acquire faith, I didn't know the answer. I don't know myself how to work on faith. How do you work on faith? You know, what, what do you do? You can academically study, 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 study. God is everything and everything is God. God is everything and everything is God. But how do you take it from the intellect to the emotion? You know, in life, it's not about your intellectual knowledge. It's about your muscle memory. And when life and Judaism doesn't become a muscle memory, then we don't react the right way. We're thrown off. But when something becomes through habitual behavior, a muscle memory, a martial artist is not someone who knows the moves. It's someone whose muscle memory instinctively goes into the moves. As a Jew, a Muna becomes real when it's a muscle memory, when instinctively we go straight into Hashem Echad. In God, I trust. So I did research. I looked into it. And on, let me just be clear. I looked into it not as a rabbi to teach others. I looked into it for myself. How do we have real faith and trust when stuff hits the fan? And I found letters of the Rebbe where the Rebbe talks about Torah study. Torah study rewires our brain. We now know in science that everything in our brain, not everything, but 98%, it's all soft-wired, not hard-wired. And we can rewire our paradigm. We can rewire our perspective. Fake it until we make it now has scientific grounds, has scientific things, because when we keep on, when we keep on putting together the different neurosynaptics, you know, they fire together and they, they connect together. So, you know, if, if my, my, my instinct is to habitual behavior when something happens to, to go into a tantrum and start cursing and swearing, then that's what I do automatically. But if I can start training and rewiring that when something gets frightened in me, the, the connection is automatically in God I trust, it's gonna be okay. Then that becomes reality. And Torah study is a way of rewiring the brain. Another way is by simply taking baby steps. Simply taking baby steps of acts of trust, not recklessness. And I want to say this clearly. The line between recklessness and trusting God is very thin. When we act reckless and we think, no, 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 it's going to be okay. I believe in God. That's not called trust and faith. That's called lazy, immature, and dangerous. But when we have trust in God, which means we do our due diligence, and no matter how much due diligence we have, no one can control the future. And in that place, we say, listen, 
I did my due diligence. I put in my work. I put everything in place. I prayed to God. And now I move forward with trust. Things are going to come up. They're going to knock us off the seat. We're going to figure out what to do and keep on moving forward. That is called faith. So there's, you know, the famous story that every therapist tells their client, you know, there's the white wolf and the black wolf. Which wolf gets healthier and stronger? And the obvious answer is the one we feed. So if every time we get scared, we run, we're feeding the black wolf. If every time we get scared, we realize that the definition of being brave is not having no fear. It's having fear and moving forward anyway. And we do that with little things and then bigger things and bigger things. We're feeding the white wolf and faith and trust in God will, will grow. However, now I want to go to something which I don't have a source for it other than a story about the Rebbe. This is, I share clearly my own thoughts. The other things I told you I've read in Torah, Torah is absolute. My mind is barely functioning in relativity, so never mind the absolute. So take it at Phil's value, agree with it, disagree with it, toy with it, question it, work it. So there was a scientist who came to the Rebbe back in the 60s, and he had questions, you know, the famous questions that scientists have on Torah versus science, science versus Torah, age of the world, blah, 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 all this stuff. And he had a long private audience with the Rebbe. And of course, when he came out, he was ambushed by all the chassidim. No, 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 what was your question? What did the Rebbe answer? We wanted to document everything. And we, I, I was born in 67. I mean, we in the, in the bigger we, chassidim. And he said, listen, I'm not going to get into, you, into it with you, the questions I asked and the answer I asked. But I will tell you what my thoughts on the Rebbe is. It's okay. And this was a non-religious person. He said, it is mind-boggling to me how the Rebbe holds his ground in a scientific conversation as an adult, knowledgeable scientist. And then out of nowhere, chimes in with the faith of a child. He couldn't wrap his head around that. Now, based just on this statement from that scientist about the Rebbe, I want to put out there an hypothesis. The adult us is not capable of faith. Because the adult us is all about a mature mind. An adult us is all about working not from the brain stem or the limbic system, but pri pri primarily from the frontal cortex, the executive brain. And the more we grow up, and I don't just mean grow up like by the passport, we ate for 20 years. The more we live as a human being for 20 years, for 30 years, for 40 years, we more and more 
develop and evolve the neuron connections, neurosynaptic connections in the frontal cortex. And the more we work on logic, the more we see that God created a system, a system that we can understand, that we can work with, and not just from Newton's laws of probability, but today we're even wrapping our brain around intellectually, around quantum physics, understanding, um, you know, we're learning, it's, it's brain work. Now, the brain in itself is a dichotomy to faith because faith lives in the heart. So what we know, we don't believe. What we believe, we don't know. I don't believe this to be true if I know it to be true, if it's been scientifically proven, not just a theory. However, I believe that which I cannot absolutely prove to know. So really the adult me, which is the developed mind, is not the me that produces and embraces faith. Rather, I today understand and believe the part of us which can acquire faith instinctively is our inner child. Now in Kabbalah, we are taught that time is not a linear process, but an onion process. In other words, we never stop being one years old, just that on top of our one-year-old grows a two-year-old and then a three-year-old. Hence, we always have within us our inner child. The inner child is the perfect, the perfect being within me, which breathes, lives, finds comfort in faith. The adult me does not find comfort in faith. The adult me finds comfort in control. I feel safe when I'm in control. I'm in control when I understand the process, understand the probabilities, can foresee the future and protect myself. That's the adult me. The inner child me gets confused by all of that. The inner child me finds comfort, security, safety when it is able to live in its faith. When it's able to live in the let go and let God when it's able to embrace that Hashem has carried me thus far and will continue carrying me, when it's able to feel like every child should feel, unconditionally loved by his or her primary caretakers. And if we didn't feel loved by our biological primary caretakers, that's when the recovery work comes to realize that our biological parents were conduits and our true parent is God Almighty himself, herself. And hence, when we can feel like every child does, they feel safe when they have eye contact and feel the unconditional love and hence protection from its primary caretaker. So I'm going to share with you today for the first time, if you want to know, Rabbi, 
where can I acquire, how can I acquire faith? I'm going to share with you that the work is in coming to peace with our inner child. Most of us, we suffer from self-loathing, self-disgust. We look at our inner child as the one that destroys everything. My inner child throws tantrums. It self-sabotages. It lives in fear. It expects only to be hurt because it feels, it feels that it's always been hurt and let down. And anytime something happens good, we immediately live in that fear factor. Okay, when's the second foot coming down? So I'm going to share with you that faith in God is primarily going to be the outcome of inner child work, of coming to peace with who we are. Today, I sent out an epiphany moment that there's a big difference with believing it's okay the way we are, which isn't necessarily true. But what is true is it's okay who we are. And now we can embrace who we are and fix and evolve and grow the way we are. But if we're not going to learn to make peace with our inner child, if we're not going to learn the process of making my inner child feel safe within me. Now, I will tell you that a child who has a parent who's not a safe driver will feel very unsafe whenever they're in the car with their parent. And all of a sudden you'll start hearing, no, no, don't worry, dad, it's a close, I'll walk. Because there's a, you know, there's a precedent here. So when we, the adult me, can stop being such a reckless, self-sabotaging, negative, pessimistic, victimized, self-loathing creature, but the inner child can now begin to understand that the adult doesn't hate the child, but understands the child and even thanks the child. Because if the inner child in me would not have learned how to isolate, I would have been crushed and destroyed in my childhood. So embracing my inner child, understanding my inner child, and letting my inner child know it's okay. Those days are over. Today, I walk with God. Today, I'm not here to break you. I'm here to learn from you, to empower you, to hold your hand. You bring me creativity. I will bring you actuality. That's the conversation we have to have with our inner child. And by doing that, we will be able to experience what it means to be in the embrace of a loving, unconditional father. And when we have that loving, unconditional father, capital F, God, then it's only natural to have faith in God and trust in God. Thank you, people. I will now open up the lines.